This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. You're listening to the TopRopePress.com radio network. This should be played at high volume, preferably in a residential area. champion you don't like it i don't care you don't speak english i don't care fool me once shame on shame on you it fooled me we can't get fooled again and i have half the brain that you do they think they got the answers i change the questions Welcome, everybody, back to Top Rope Nation. I'm your host, Ryan Drosty, as always, joined here by the crown prince of Cleveland himself, Kyle Ross, news writer extraordinaire for Top Rope Press. Kyle, how are you doing tonight? Great. Uh, thanks for having me back on the show, Ryan. I must have passed the test on the first week. I, I would have called you the king of Cleveland, but I figured that name was already taken. Yes, it already else. is taken. I'm working on it, though. You know, I, I guess there's at least three more years where I, I have to concede that to somebody else. <laughs> Yeah, well, we'll go with Crown Prince. I think yeah, that three works. years and a hundred million dollars. I'm behind, so we got, we got time. You can catch yeah, up. Yeah, maybe in 2019. Well, speaking of LeBron, um, we had some big news break today um, across the internet, and that is that the mothership themselves, ESPN, is getting into professional wrestling coverage on their website. We know they've been doing it on SportsCenter uh, here and there with Jonathan Coachman, but they now have a dedicated section on ESPN.com to WWE. Um, what were your first thoughts, Kyle, when you saw this news break? Because I think you covered it for Top Row Press. I did, and my reaction was that I was shocked. Quite frankly, I, I couldn't believe it. I didn't know. You know, it was one of the first things I saw when I woke up. I put Twitter on, um, or I just brought it up on my phone, and there were like, three people who had said, oh my God, ESPN has a WWE section now on the website. And I went to it and it's essentially what I figured it might be. Uh, there's a couple ways to look at this and I'm sure we'll dive into both sides of the coin here. Uh, from the WWE's perspective, it's a major coup. I mean, that was my second thought on the thing. I mean, to get a section like that on ESPN, I mean, ESPN's big time, man. And to get a section like that is a really big deal for WWE. I think... I mean, obviously, you've probably gone through this before. When you tell people you write about wrestling, you know, people in just your everyday life, you know, to certain people, there's a stigma that comes with that, I think. You know, to be fair. Yeah, definitely. And in partnering with ESPN, that kind of breaks down that stigma. So that's a good thing for everybody involved, I think. Um, 
The other good thing from the WWE perspective is we know how they love to control media narratives, much like the UFC loves to control uh, media coverage of it. And I know you're a big sports fan, and this even would pertain, I think, to the NFL, who a lot of people are critical of ESPN's kind of maybe softball coverage with the NFL, that they're a willing dance partner, or they've proven themselves to be with these larger you know, sports leagues and, you know, WWE is not a sports league, but it's a large entity, large, you know, sports entertainment organization. So I think you're going to see that from WWE. It's not going to be hard hitting coverage. I, I think we're all in agreement about that. But yeah. WWE can push its favorable narratives to a lot of people uh, through this platform. I, that was kind of my first reaction. I agree. Um, that, yeah, I mean, just having Jonathan Coachman there, we've seen a little bit from his Sports Center segments. They've been pretty. I mean, there hasn't been a lot of hard hitting interviews. We've we've even seen where he's kind of been. Um, I guess as a journalist, he was taking a lot of heat when the uh, concussion yes. lawsuit story was coming out. I mean, him and Dave Meltzer were going back and forth on Twitter, <laughs> and uh, I mean. Yeah, I think he's definitely he's coming from that WWE perspective. You're not going to get fair and balanced coverage, as you know Fox News likes to say. You're going to get softball interviews, uh, which is good if you are a casual fan, or I mean, it's good for WWE to maybe bring in some new eyes to the product because they might stumble across that section on the website. Um, but I mean, if you're a hardcore wrestling fan, and we're not just saying this because we write on a you know, now a rival wrestling news site. Um, but you're not going to get like the, uh, the backstage news. You're not going to get the hard hitting analysis. You're going to get like we saw, um, Kyle, didn't you say there was a triple H interview that went up just a little bit ago and was pretty, yeah. pretty soft. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, God bless triple H. He's done a lot of great things for this, the business. Um, and quite frankly, when it comes to mindsets as to what professional wrestling should be in 2016, you know, he's probably as sharp as anyone in the building right now. But he did this interview where he criticized people who are critical of 50-50 booking. He specifically used the term 50-50 booking, and he was very critical of people using the term. And he's like, oh. And he went to the hole, and this is always like the worst. When he's like, oh, you know, how's your territory doing, all you people that want to say that? It's like, come on. And... You know, and he started giving examples. He's like, oh, you know, sometimes people like seeing the underdog lose all the time. And I'm like, boy, this is real self-serving and justifying some things. But, you know, again, first of all, what was the most shocking of all we need to mention? I don't know if you caught this at the time, but when I went to ESPN to check this out, it was on their front page. Believe it or not. I have not seen that. No. Yeah. I mean, it's gone. It's it's not that way anymore. Oh, okay. But like, uh. Like it literally was, you know, I mean, you're familiar with ESPN.com. They've got, you know, the above the fold thing, the headline section. The headline section was ESPN unveils new WWE section. I mean, they were heavily promoting this thing this morning. That was, I think, the most shocking thing of them all. Um, But yeah, back to the Triple H interview. I mean, it's kind of, you know, it's good because, you know, those are the kind of interviews they want to do. You know, they don't want, they're not going to be and. The ESPN people aren't going to ask the questions, you know, about, oh, you know, they're not going to, you know, fire back. Well, oh, you know, you, you know, you had Daniel Bryan was red hot and then you, you know, you booked him like crap when he was the champion, you know, <laughs> yeah y- your response, please. They're not going to say that. So, um, yeah, it's good. And, you know, controlling media narratives, if you go back to the 80s when Vince first went national, 
was huge for WWE than WWF. Uh, you know, I mean, they, you know, Vince was able to kind of, was actually just listening to something I can't even remember what it was about, but um, it was something, some historical business where uh, they were talking about Vince and the idea that, you know, he took wrestling out of these smoke-filled armories and put it in the big arenas, which is a lie. It's yeah. not true that that had happened long before Vince McMahon Jr. had come along, but he was able to sort of craft through the media that that's true and people bought it. And most people today still believe it. I mean, if you look, you know, there, there's tons of things that weren't true that they pushed as true in that era. You know, I mean, you know, I know a lot of people listening to the show know there weren't 93,171 people or 173, whatever it was. At WrestleMania 3, it was like 78. But, right. you know, they announced a 93,000 number and it's lived on in infamy. People just accept it as true. So, you know, UFC's gotten pretty favorable coverage. And we, you know, again, from WWE's perspective, we, we, we should be quite complimentary toward them for getting this because ESPN, I think it's safe to say, has helped UFC grow. And one would logically think that this will help WWE grow comes at a time. They have their second biggest show of the year next week, SummerSlam. It's a different world we live in now with WWE since pay-per-view is basically a non-entity. But um, along with the stigma being broken down, I mean, getting that kind of mainstream coverage is something wrestling's really, I don't want to say it's never gotten because it's gotten mainstream coverage before, but I wrote this in the piece that the only time, you know, for decades in the 80s and 90s that SportsCenter would talk about WWE it was always kind of tongue-in-cheek and negative. It'd be when a Lawrence Taylor did WrestleMania or Mike Tyson did WrestleMania. Those were the examples I gave. Um, you know, th that was kind of the only time they ever did. So th this is big for them. But I don't expect the coverage itself to be that great. And to your point, I don't expect it to kind of be the kind of coverage that hardcore wrestling fans, kind of people who come to our site, would be looking for. And, and that's not trying to be a self-serving comment. It's just, I think, accurate. I think the deal is WWE, they think of media interviews and all coverage in the media as kind of part of the story, part of the narrative. Um, I mean, Vince McMahon has even said, like, especially regarding the WrestleMania 3 attendance that you mentioned a second ago, I know uh, Meltzer asked him at one point, you know, how come you keep saying 73 or 93,000 when it was 78,000? And Vince told him, well, everything you see on TV is for entertainment. And I think that's how they feel in regards to all coverage that comes at them. Um, there, I know for, you know, from being involved in covering wrestling now for the last, you know, 15 years or so that I've been doing it, that whenever their talents do interviews, you know, they, they have pre-screened questions. Um, mm -hmm. if you, if you ask them, I know when I was, um, over at wrestleview.com and we had a chance to do interviews with some, uh, WWE talent, they would have someone like listening on the line. And if you asked a question that was like out of bounds, they would end the interview then. Oh, wow. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't the esteemed Jerry McDevitt. I, I assume that's maybe a little bit below his pay. Yeah, grade. no, it wasn't him. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was gonna say that that's not somebody you want on your bad side, but the, but nope. the thing was, they were kind of, uh, maybe like a year and a half ago, they were kind of opening up to, you know, letting their guys do just random podcasts again, because they had really cl closed up, tightened it up where you needed pre-approved yes. shows. Those are the only shows you could go on. And then, uh, top real press actually broke the story on the internet, um, last fall that they drastically changed their media policy, um, right after, the story with Charlotte Flair when uh, Reed Flair's death was brought up in the storyline on Raw. 
and they were getting a lot of heat for that. And then Flair had Rick Flair had said something about it on his podcast. And like right after that, they didn't want like anyone coming at Charlotte and asking her about it. So they kind of closed up shop again. They had like pre-selected shows. These were the only shows their talent could appear on. So, I mean, that just goes back to your point of trying to control the narrative. And I mean, obviously, like we said, ESPN is, is a huge coup for them, but yeah, you're gonna you're gonna get like pre-approved WWE questions in any interview they do. The writing's gonna be pretty non-critical, but you know, like we said, it's it's gonna bring in some probably casual fans to the product. Um, but if you're if you're a hardcore fan, and you've been watching for 20 years, you're probably not going to to learn a lot from that coverage. Yeah. Now the one exception to the not learning anything is I assume, and I don't know this to be true, but I would assume because I know UFC does this a lot. And I think UFC is the best, although Vince would you know, claim UFC is not competition, but reality, they're kind of doing the same thing. That you will see them use SportsCenter and ESPN to break big news stories. I would imagine that's going to happen. And that would be, I think, if you're a, if someone, if you're kind of maybe seeking out news or, you know, that would kind of be the one value to ESPN that that, I, I think they may be a source and where WWE chooses to break a lot of news. Because, right. you know, they love to, you know, when they um, they love to show on Raw and stuff. Oh, TMZ reported this this week. This was in Rolling Stone. You know, they love to show that. So, uh, you know, th- there's nothing more that I'm sure they'd love to show on Raw than, you know, as first seen on ESPN.com. I mean, that would be, you know, th- that's what I imagine um, we'll be seeing from them. Well, speaking of the media narrative, um, there was also an interview that Stephanie McMahon gave today, or, or actually, correct me, this was a conference call, Kyle? It was a press conference she did. I can't remember who it was with now all of a sudden. I could bring that up. But it was one of her, um, it was one of her um, many speaking engagements she does. And she apparently exact. spoke about, you know, WWE was um, open to involving LGBT um, causes. And their storylines, is that correct? Her characters. Characters. One second here. WWE plans. So she was speaking at an event hosted by Beyond Sport, which was at the Barclays Center, which is, of course, where SummerSlam is going to be next weekend. And she was asked about the WWE's role in ensuring gender inclusion in sports. And her comment was, we will integrate LGBT characters into our programming. And I do think there will be an opportunity to integrate some of those storylines in the near future. So, yeah, she said that. And that's, um, you know, my first reaction was, is WWE has never been on the cutting edge of social commentary. No. <laughs> at, at all. I mean, and, you know, you'd, I'd love to sit here and say, oh, we're well past the days of adorable Adrian Adonis and Goldust, who are, of course, characters that, you know, basically preyed on the public's homophobia and would have, you know, I, I, everyone in the building today would, it would agree there's zero place for that. And, they, you know, I'm sure many of them look back and say, yeah, you know, different time, you know, we know better now. You, you'd love to say that, but there was that... Uh, Burton Ernie joke that Cass made on Raw yeah. on Monday, which did not go over well. I don't know if you noticed that. A lot of people were quick to notice note that online that there was kind of a, a not a groan or a gasp, but the line didn't get over well. And it was supposed to be a big babyface line towards Jericho and Owens, you know, about them being like Burton Ernie and doing stuff in the bath or something. It wasn't well executed to begin with by big Cass, but you know, you almost, just I mean. 
yeah, that's you almost four wonder days if, ago. You almost wonder if this was to kind of save face a little bit because they did get some heat for that. You know, I mean, WWE with their anti-bullying campaign, there's always been kind of this weird conundrum where, you know, they tell you not to bully, but then they've they've got, you know, like Jim Ross getting bullied every time they're in o- Oklahoma City. <laughs> and yeah. uh, you, you got the Burton Ernie joke this week. So it's interesting timing that, you know, they made kind of a homophobic joke and then just a few days later, um, Stephanie makes those comments. And this is definitely something that WWE has pivoted on over the years a lot. Um, and there's been different times where, you know, without getting too political here, we know here in the United States, the uh, opinions on like same sex marriage have really shifted over the last five to 10 years. And yes. um, overall, the public's pretty accepting of that now across the United States, depending on where you live, of course, but the the population as a whole. So they've, they've tried to, um, I don't know if it's erased their past of preying on homophobia, like you mentioned, Kyle, but they've, you know, years ago, they did the whole Billy and Chuck wedding. Yeah. And they tried to get some mainstream press off of that. And then with Darren Young recently, you know, they, they made a, a big point to say, well, he was the first openly gay wrestler to come out of the closet, which which was kind of odd because, you know, Pat Patterson for years was openly gay. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess they didn't broadcast that to the general public like yeah, Darren yeah. Young. but Yeah, I mean, they would, they would always be the Jim Ross uh, sort of inside reference I mean, again, you meant a lot of people knew it, but, you know, he would make, you know, during the Stooges days um, at the height of the Attitude Era, when him and Briscoe were on TV every week behind McMahon. I mean, Jim Ross would always kind of make these wink, wink remarks. Again, comments that probably would not fly at all on television um, in 2016. Right. Yeah. So I, I guess we, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, Conor McGregor. Now, um, kind of going along the lines of other big stories that happened this week, this has been a big one for, this has been a big week for WWE outside of uh, their own bubble, because um, we've got Conor McGregor, you know, arguably one of the biggest stars in UFC this week, as as you wrote on Top Rope Press, Kyle, he trolled the WWE roster, and it was pretty clear from his comments, you know, he's he's positioning himself for a appearance or spot in WWE down the line and he's masterfully doing this um if you don't know Conor McGregor is someone who grew up a massive wrestling fan he's still a wrestling fan um but you know this week he talked about um Brock Lesnar a little bit and a steroid test you know he said he was juiced up to the blanking eyeballs um, he said he didn't really know anything about CM Punk, and he said for the most part those WWE guys are blanks. Uh, to be honest, they're messed up blanks, if you ask me. And after that, we saw a hailstorm of responses from yeah. the wrestling world. Um, Connor even got on his Twitter account. He said, "I didn't mean no disrespect to the WWE fans. What I meant to say was that I'd slap the head off your entire roster and twice on Sundays." Now, we were kind of talking about this off the air a little bit, Kyle. Um, Roman Reigns was one of the first people to step up, and he said, you're the size of my leg, shut up, in response to Connor. But there was nothing yeah, wrong, on television this your, week. Too. What's that? Wrong your poor, poor, poor yeah. Roman. Can't <laughs> poor even, grammar, can't yes. even get his grammar right. Yeah, yeah, I guess the grammar police probably chanted, you know, you can't spell at him or something like that. <laughs> clap, clap, clap. Your, Y-O-U-R, the size of my leg, shut up. Now... We were saying that this was kind of a missed opportunity for the WWE, who has been desperate to get Reigns over as a babyface. We talked a little bit on the show last week about that. 
was this not the perfect opportunity for them to turn around and use this on television to get Roman Reigns to be the savior for all the wrestling fans that were so mad about Connor's comments? I think so. Now, I wanted to back up first because I thought the coverage of this was all kind of weird. Um, it wasn't wrong, but, you know, I think a lot of the, you know, the places that, you know, the, the bigger place, you know, like where that's like Meltzer or Keller, they were really critical of the way the guys WWE responded to McGregor. You know, I think Meltzer was like, what are these guys, idiots? Like, do they not realize he's working them? And, and, and there was a point to be there. I think some of the guys didn't, you know, should have been sharper than that. But my point is, and kind of building off the question you just asked, is, okay, well, maybe at first they were fooled or something like that and they were being stupid, but, you know, let's do business. Let's somehow, you know, try to get something positive out of this is the way that they should be looking at, at least in my opinion. And with Roman Reigns, you've got a guy who they've been desperate now for what, two years? To yeah. make the number one the number one baby face in the company, it's coming up on two. I mean, you you could start to see the seeds of that in the summer of two thousand fourteen. Yeah, and it's real to me. You, you don't have to because you look. I don't know what the deal is right now with WWE and UFC. I don't know if they can get Conor McGregor for an appearance. I don't know any of that. Maybe none of it will ever. It, none of this will be. You know, it'll be much ado about nothing, as the old phrase is. But. To me, I would have Roman Reigns go out there and say something. Like when he was out there with Rusev, you know, just something to the effect of, you know, I'll kick your ass. And oh, by the way, speaking of guys whose ass I can kick, you know, how about Conor McGregor? Just something simple like that and have him because, you know, what they're doing with him and Rusev right now, a lot of people made this point and I agree. And I think we even said it last week is very old school, traditional by the numbers and effective way of getting over a baby face, you know, just having him oppose, you know, the foreign heel and whatnot. I mean, it, it, it works, you know, the stuff with the cake this week, but he can't work opposite Rusev forever. And if you position him as a guy who's standing up for wrestling and wrestling fans against the UFC, you know, and there were a lot of wrestling fans who got all up in arms about it and they probably shouldn't have, but they did. I think that shines reigns in a better light. I mean, I would have made a huge production about it on Raw. I would have had him say something, though, and reference it. Because I think it would have cast him in a more positive light. Well, yeah, I mean, why not? I mean, this is a guy, like you said, they've been, they've tried every trick in the book to get him over as a babyface. It hasn't worked. I mean, why not have him stand there in the ring this week, talk about how, you know, I'm not... I, I'm not afraid of Rusev. I'm not afraid of anyone, speaking of which, and then just yes. throw that tweet right up on the Titantron. Conor McGregor is one of the biggest sports stars in the world right now. He's tweeting or he's tweeting at I guess all of your wrestlers, not specifically Roman Reigns, but he's tweeting about WWE. He's talking about WWE. Use that to your advantage. I mean, this is how you get mainstream attention. They're going to SummerSlam, their second biggest show of the year, arguably. This, I mean, this is when they can get the coverage and uh, possibly build something for Mania. So, yeah, I agree. This was a, a lost opportunity. But, hey, I mean, they still got a chance. Maybe next week they'll throw something out there. We'll see. Well, well it's funny because, you know, this thought kind of came to me before today when the ESPN coverage rolled out, but my thought was, I'm like, you know, if they have a guy on their active roster calling out Conor McGregor, that's the kind of thing that SportsCenter, you know, the way SportsCenter is now, will cover. I mean, SportsCenter 
I mean, again, you're a big sports fan. You, I'm sure you watch the show from time to time. They relish, you know, finding any kind of conflict going on in the world of sports, any sort of debate or anything they could sink their teeth into. I mean, that's ESPN's mantra these days. They would have absolutely talked about it. And I mean, it would have been, you know, probably not the smartest discussion they would have had, but it would have been a discussion nonetheless on that platform. And, and I think that would have, it would have served, it, it may not have served WWE well, but I think it would have served Roman Reigns specifically well. Yeah. Because he needs a lot. I mean, like I said, he can't work opposite Rusev forever. And after that feud's over, is he just going to go back? I mean, you know, he's, the reaction's been a little bit more positive the last two weeks. But there's, you know, I'd be stunned if he wasn't still booed fairly heavily by a significant portion of the crowd at SummerSlam. I think I think the crowd loves to, or maybe not. Maybe it's an overstatement to say they love to cheer him. But I think there's a big section of the male audience that actually loves Rusev and everything he does. I mean, the guy's oh, awesome in good. his role. Awesome yeah, in his role. Yeah. I mean, I mean that's. I mean, it's funny because there's the that large portion of the crowd. It's the same part part of the crowd that you were just referencing. I think that they don't cheer and boo based on you know babyface heel they cheer and boo based on who's performing their role the best right and rusev is far more effective in his role than roman reigns is in his that's just the fact well how can guys not love rusev i mean look at the guy he comes out of wrestlemania on a tank <laughs> he's yeah, awesome in his, unbelievable yeah he's awesome in his role and in real life he locked down lana i mean this is everything that every guy watching the product loves so yes exactly yeah and then what and then you have you know roman reigns coming out like trying to be like joe cool and cut this like best bands i mean that kind of failed miserably i mean to me him coming out saying you know i could beat up conor mcgregor even whether he believes it or not or you know um, is a lot more effective than, you know, him sipping champagne and telling bad jokes. Yeah, exactly. So speaking of Conor McGregor and UFC, um, we were also getting into a discussion a little bit ago, right before we started the show about Brock Lesnar and, um, you know, how he's been handled since his fight at UFC 200 and actually just how he's been handled over the last couple of years. And I think both Kyle and I have this sense that Brock has lost a lot of the steam that he had when he first came back to WWE. And it's really kind of weird because after his win at UFC 200, I think people were pumped to see him back in WWE, pumped to see him at SummerSlam. And then when that those uh, two drug test failures came out, it seemed to really take the wind out of his sails. When, when we saw him come back on Raw uh, a couple weeks ago, I mean, it was the closing segment on the show, and the crowd was pretty much... I, w I wouldn't go so far as to say they were dead, but they were not very, you know, into the segment whatsoever. So, I mean, what we were talking about is where has WWE gone wrong with Brock Lesnar? Or is this something that Brock has done to himself? Are, are people just getting bored of the whole character? I mean, wh what's your thoughts on this, Kyle? Where do you think it went off the rails? No, I don't know. I think it's a debatable point right now. I mean, I think you said that you see some of this too, um, on your Twitter feed, but there's a pre vocal group of people online who are very anti Brock right now. And it actually extends back before the failure, the drug test failures and the whole UFC thing. I think there is an argument to be made that he isn't the mover business wise that he's made out to be by some. I mean, you talked about the rating just a moment ago. I mean, the third rating always, the third hour rating always falls, but 
you would have figured with him, his first appearance since Mania, I mean, what, that that's like three, four, I mean, at this point, that'd been four months that he'd been off TV. You figured that the drop-off wouldn't be as severe as per usual, and I think it was, if not more. I mean, that that really caught me by surprise. And, you know, I don't know what the, I mean, it, some of it is the way he's been positioned. I, I don't think he's been booked great since he's been back. Uh, you know, going back all the way to 2012. Um, I thought it was incomprehensible that he lost that first match to John Cena. I think that's one of the worst booking decisions in company history, especially because they, they then went to play with the narrative. Oh, this is the word that 2012 was the worst year of John Cena's career. And like he won almost every match. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that was a, that Triple H feud went way too long. Um, you know, he beat Triple H twice, but Triple H, smartest guy in the room, you know, won the one at Mania. And, you know, from there, they he started to get booked better that, um, you know, I'm going to be coming out here next week with my top 10 SummerSlam matches of all time. And the one against CM Punk in 13 is going to place very high. Spoiler alert. Uh, and then, you know what? I'm and, and we're now what? Uh, two year, two years removed, two and a half years removed from this. Yeah. I don't know. And I, I've never asked you this. I don't know if him ending the streak was the right call. Everyone seems to be, you know, Vince, when he did Austin's podcast, oh, who better than Brock Lesnar? And when you look at WrestleMania this past year, who was in the money match and who was in the middle of the card doing this disappointing program with Dean Ambrose? Right. Yeah, I mean, I, f I felt at the time in 14 that, you know, if someone's going to be the Undertaker, why not Lesnar? He's got the most real credibility, UFC heavyweight champion, NCAA champion. I liked it at the time. But the way it it has um, shaked out over the last couple of years, I'm not so sure anymore. I mean, yeah, yeah go ahead. Oh, I, I thought it was almost at the t when I watched it live, I, I, I was pretty shocked. I think like everybody was. I almost thought it was overcompensation for the lackluster booking going into the match. I'm, I think I'm like the only person who thought that. Like I told that to a buddy. He's like, oh, you're just, you know, you're being too cynical with that. But if you remember that match was and the match was horrible. I mean. You know, Undertaker, you know, got what, like a concussion in the middle of the match, like real early in the match. And the, the match itself wound up being terrible and the crowd was dead yeah. up until the fall. But if you remember the booking going into it, everyone had just kind of assumed Lesnar was going to lose. And, you know, there were other Undertaker matches where I think people were buying his chance of losing more. And it would have actually made sense more. Yeah. Uh, more sense, I should say, uh, for him to lose. And, I just, it's odd. Like, I don't think, especially when you look at where both were positioned on the card two years later, that that's given Lesnar this, you know, this rub that everyone think it has. I don't know if that's the case. It did get him hot for a while, but the title run didn't really work out that well because he just doesn't give Vince enough dates to work. So, you know, I mean, you know, the night when he won at UFC 200, everyone's like, oh, you got to put the title back on Brock Lesnar. I was like, hey, you know, we've seen that before. And that story doesn't work. He's just not going to come in for enough dates to do that. I mean, even with two champions, I don't think that would necessarily work. And, you know, over the last year or so, he's just a guy who, you know, is he's in a lot of three ways. And he's the guy who's not involved in the fall. Yeah. You know, that happened at Fastlane. Uh, you know, the match with Ambrose, I don't think that, you know, Ambrose was critical of it the other night on the with Austin. And that certainly did no one any favors. I mean, it didn't get Lesnar over anymore. And when you look back with where they've got Ambrose positioned now, 
that's just a mistake to, that they did that to Ambrose. So I don't know. I, yeah, th- there's an argument that, you know, I don't know what you thought. Randy Orton's not going to win at SummerSlam. I'd be shocked if he did. But I think Orton has done a pretty good job in building this match up. And I think the question of do you at least consider maybe putting Orton over at SummerSlam isn't ridiculous, although I don't think it's the answer is yes. I, yeah, I'm I'm not so negative. I, I mean, a month ago I would have said no way should Orton win this match, but it's really kind of weird how this has happened because I feel like Orton is the guy that feels fresh right now, and Lesnar, who hasn't been around either, but, you know, is the bigger star, no doubt, he's the guy that kind of feels like yesterday's news and that people don't really care as much anymore. So, like you said, I, I'm also not as negative about Orton possibly winning. I don't think he's going to, but uh, I, I would make him certainly look strong because he's going to have to be one of the guys that really carries that SmackDown roster moving forward. Yeah. And, and to go back to what you said about you know, Brock beating Taker at WrestleMania 30, you know, I, I still, I guess, I still would say it wasn't a mistake because as I'm thinking about it more and more here, I, I don't see anyone on on the current roster at least, that, you know, should have beat him over Brock. Um, you know, Rollins wasn't in, in a position at the time to defeat Undertaker. Um, Punk had just left the company. Yes. Uh, going in. He was a guy who was on top for a little bit, but he never felt like he was truly the guy on top. He wasn't going to yeah, get a main event. Yeah, but my point with Punk is, to jump in there, I felt that there was maybe a, like, I felt stronger about... And maybe I'm just wrong. Maybe I'm just out to launch here. But I remember, you know, because Punk worked against Undertaker the year before. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I think there's a a real debate here that could be had that Punk maybe should enter be the guy who ends the streak. And right. he obviously didn't. But I didn't feel that way about Lesnar going into that particular match. I mean, in retrospect, it kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I just thought that that feud was booked so poorly. Yeah. That I wasn't thinking about it at all. And there, I mean, there were probably if you go back. Through the years, there were probably other times I thought, eh, you know, um, maybe the Undertaker should lose this year. But, you know, I always thought it should be maybe to to make a guy, a guy to take to the next level. And I'm not sure if Lesnar has gone to a next level, really. I guess is kind of to put a bow on this whole argument. I'm not sure if Lesnar did really go to a next level after after beating the Undertaker. He he had been booked poorly for those first two years, I think, and was now kind of where he should have been after he beat the undertaker. But I don't know if he is, you know, the guy, you know, if, if he's, if he's up here and the rest of the rosters down here, when it comes to moving business, I'm not sure if that's accurate. And by the way, I should notice a bit of breaking news here while we're in the air that his, um, the NSA will not, uh, the NSAC, I should say, not the N- if the NSA meets, that'd be weird. Uh, but the NSAC, <laughs> Uh, will uh, not convene on Lesnar's drug test failures till after SummerSlam. So there will be no news um, that could, you know, further jeopardize how he's positioned on the card between now and SummerSlam. So back to what you said about Punk here before we move on. Um, That's kind of what I was getting at, actually, is because, like I said, you know, people on the current roster, I don't see anyone other than Brock that should have beat the streak. But... CM Punk is the one guy I could point to that, that I would say, yeah, possibly might have been a better choice. And I know by WrestleMania 30, he was out. He had just left a couple months earlier. 
But what's the reason CM Punk left the company? Because he felt like he wasn't getting main event booking. Uh, he wasn't going to get to headline WrestleMania. I think they had him slated to work with uh, Triple H that year, if I recall correctly. Yes, and he, he did not like that storyline. Yeah. Well, I mean, imagine they said, all right, we're going to put you in a return match with The Undertaker. It's going to go on last, and you're going to beat the streak. He'd still be in the WWE today. Yes. So, but, and that yeah. would have cemented his legacy as a main eventer if he was the one that ended the streaks. So. I just think that there needed to be like, I kind of wanted it to be like a good, like again, I, and maybe I'm the only one in in America who thinks this, but I just thought it was like it just came across as the Lesnar win as overcompensation for lackluster booking. I, I wanted to see kind of like to fit a narrative. Like I, my idea always was, and maybe they'll never do this at this point. I, I actually think. There's no point in doing it anymore. But like if they were ever going to do a John Cena heel turn at one point, and I know that was actually being entertained at one point um, by them, that him ending the streak would have been a great way to do that. You I know, if he like cheated to do it. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that would have been kind of a, you know, in terms, it would be a nice use of, you know, not only would, you know, obviously Cena get a bump from doing it, but, you know, it'd be, it would serve, serve a storyline purpose as well. Yeah, I could see that happen. I mean, that, yeah, you can make a case for John Cena if it was, if it was to instigate a heel turn for yes. sure. If it was Cena as is face, no, no, definitely no, no. not. I, there's there would be no need for that. No, yeah. I would agree. So, I I mean, next week on the show, um, we we were going to announce we're going to do a, a full SummerSlam preview. We're going to talk about NXT Takeover. So we'll definitely get more into that Orton Lesnar match next week. But right now, uh, Kyle. Let's talk about the Cruiserweight Classic because that's something we haven't really talked about the last couple of weeks here on Top Rope Nation. And I know that you saw this week's match that everyone's talking about um, with Ibushi. And you said that that is probably one of the top five matches in the WWE this year. I saw last week's match with Gargano and Ciampa that I thought that was it was really good. I'm not sure I, I would say, I mean, I saw people on Twitter saying, Oh, the Gargano match and the cruise rate classic. I was crying. It was so good. And I watched it and I was like, yeah, it was, it was a really yeah, good match. Strong. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I've ever <laughs> cried after watching professional wrestling. Well, I should take that back. I'm actually doing a worst 10 matches of SummerSlam was two next week. And there's some that have made me cry in that regard. But, um, I'm assuming, have you, have you seen both of them? Did you see the Gargano? Yes, oh, yeah, match I've and... seen every match and I'll, I'm going to be honest with you, you know, um, there's an argument to be made that this already is the best tournament ever done under the WWE banner. Cause they don't do tournaments. Well, generally, no, no. I mean, the look King at WrestleMania four. <laughs> yeah, yeah. WrestleMania four was awful. Uh, the survivor series, 98 deadly game, the other world title, the other pay-per-view that was pretty much all a world title tournament storyline wise. That was good. How they got the, you know, they, they did the rock heel turn there, but the, the, the wrestling on that show was atrocious. I mean, my God, and then King of the Rings is just a failed concept. I mean, you know, it, it sounds great on paper, but the reason there's a reason it went away because they never did it well. Right. And I always joke to friends, you know, well, you know, with WWE in a tournament, I actually, this was in regards to WrestleMania four. I was actually years ago. I, I did a show with, I reviewed the show with a buddy um, who knows if you can find that online somewhere. But, uh, you know, I said, you know, the thing with the WWE is you're never going to get them to do a tournament like the Super J Cup. That'll just never happen. And by God, they're doing it here with this Cruiserweight Classic. So, um, yeah, Obushi and Alexander, I didn't get a chance to watch it last night. I watched it this morning. I'd probably go four and a half stars on it. And I think the only match that I've seen this year in WWE that was, I would say, is definitely better. And by definitely, you know, it, it's by a hair. 
would be the Nakamura Zayn match at Takeover. I think that's the best WWE. But you know, I would put Abushi Alexander right up, maybe even slightly above the Zayn Owens match that we just saw at Battleground. Um, a little above, you know. I actually, you know, maybe I'm in the minority compared to the listeners and yourself. I, I really liked the Roman Reigns AJ Styles uh, two matches they had at the main events, the pay per views, um, or whatever we're calling them these days. But uh, yeah, I would I would put it right up there as the best matches that we've uh, is one of the best matches we've seen on WWE banner. And the good news is, um, you know, Cedric Alexander who lost, uh, you know, did a lot for him. He's he's gonna be brought in and you know he got the standing ovation afterwards i think it really worked it's been a great tournament so far i don't know how caught I mean, we have the spoilers up there obviously now the rest of the second round um i'm really interested to see how the quarter fi- i mean i think when you look at the quarterfinal matchups you, you can kind of tell who's going to win three of them but after that it's going to be real interesting and i think it's going to be pretty much all good matches in the last three rounds of this tournament well, we're in agreement. Nakamura Zane to me is the match of the year so far. I'll maybe I'll comment on next week's show because I'm planning on watching the Alexander Ibushi match tonight. Um, haven't seen it yet, but I'm a huge fan of Kota Ibushi. Been watching him a long time. His match with uh, Nakamura at Wrestle Kingdom Nine, if you've never seen it, awesome, yes. awesome yes. match. Uh, referenced by Moro Ronaldo, by the way, on commentary that match. Really? Yeah. Nice. It, it, yeah, it, it's funny that um, you know I've I've seen people. S- uh, both positive and negative with Daniel Bryan's commentary on the show. And I'll say, it's just, I think what makes in by moral, by the way, if you say anything positive about him, he'll give you a retweet on Twitter. I'll tell you that much. I actually but, had to unfollow him because his, he was just filling my timeline with retweets. Yeah, I, I actually God. unfollowed him, yeah, even though I love yeah, the guy. Yeah. If you ever, if, if you're ever desperate to get anything you say, re- retweeted, just say something positive tomorrow. Ronaldo, he will retweet it. Uh, but what's good about that team is, it's it's sort of like what reminds me why people like NXT now. It's because it's it's they're they're a pro wrestling commentary team. They're it's not like what you hear on Raw and SmackDown with the the goofy forced you know arguing and stuff. Well, the, it, the key here is Vince McMahon like, isn't in their ear the whole time. Yeah, yeah, it's old school wrestling commentary, and they're talking about the match and they're getting the performers over. Um, you know, it, and it's simple. People like it, so that's why that works. But, um. Yeah, I I I thought the Cruiserweight Classic, you know, it's real interesting. I don't know how deep you want to go into it, but um, there's a real argument for who I think the the final four would be. You know, especially if Saber Junior. isn't signed, uh, and, and it looks like he's not going unless he's just you know playing coy with the internet. If he doesn't sign, he's definitely not winning, and I could see them beating him before the final too. I mean, everyone was saying going into this thing, like, oh, it's going to be Saber Junior. and Ibushi. I think if Saber Junior doesn't sign, I think they're gonna ha- they're gonna beat him earlier than expected. I don't know that, but I would anticipate it. Yeah, I I don't think Saber Junior is going to win it. I thought going in that he probably would, um, but yeah, I highly doubt it at this point. Um, I think Gargano is someone that would make sense. I mean, he's people love that guy. And- yeah, they really do. But at the same time, I mean, he's got a storyline on NXT, and and I, um, you know, um. Uh, I don't want to spoil things, I guess, if, if people don't know it. But, you know, Metallic, um, Akira Tozawa, that whole Jack Gallagher, that whole bracket. I think that's an interesting one at the top. And then Rich Swan's a guy who I think uh, could find himself in the semifinals as well. He, he really impressed me in his first match. 
I'll tell you what I love about the Cruiserweight Classic is the just the whole look of the show. I mean, we talked a lot about over the last two weeks on the show, whether it was Jason and me or you and I, that uh, you know we we kind of hashed it out on was Raw and SmackDown did it look different enough? I think we can all agree the Cruiserweight Classic definitely looks different enough. They, oh, I mean, yeah, they, they even sure. went so far with the different turnbuckles. You know, they've got the. Uh, you know, the square turnbuckles turn the opposite way of the WWE turnbuckles. The more, I guess, if you watch WCW back in the day, it looks more like a WCW ring or your your general independent ring. Um, the lighting, the entrance ways, the announcers. It's I love Ronaldo. I think he's the best play by play man in the company. Um, I'm not as impressed with Daniel Bryan as some people are, but you know he's brand new to it. I think he can be really good over time. He gets repetitive. I yeah. think he is like, oh, my God, I've never seen that before. It's kind of, you know, sounds the, a little forced, I think. Yeah. I mean, and he might be. I mean, it may not be forced. He may he just may not. It, it may just be crutch phrases. But again, it, I at least appreciate how he tries to get over the talent and what you're seeing in the ring as opposed to himself or just like make stupid jokes and stuff like that. I think that could be I, I think just because he doesn't fall into the traps, like some of the negative stuff we see. Um, from WWE announcing, I think just because of that, because he doesn't do that, he's perceived as better. And plus, people just like Daniel Bryan. I mean, you know, you know I mean, no one really likes Byron Saxton or David Otunga, <laughs> or certainly Fair JBL, point. or yeah. certainly JB. You know, JB. Oh, boy, JBL was a great heel announcer years ago. Yes, <laughs> when he first started, God, I. But he is horrible now. I mean, just he is just Yo, atrocious. Doing, yeah, doing SmackDown. My God, he is like he's dragging more Ronaldo. Him and Ronaldo. I, I was actually like looking forward to that a little bit. I was like, oh, okay, maybe that'll work. It has not. I mean, he's dragging Moro down, and Otunga is just. I mean, God bless the guy, but he he adds nothing to the show. I almost, I would almost just rather have it be Ronaldo and JBL, so they don't have to like just kind of like feed lines and let Otunga speak. Yeah, well, that's just the to thing. See how, how, just to see how that dynamic would work, because yeah. I can't imagine JBL. I mean, look, I know that he's always the guy who says what Vince tells him to. He's always kind of the mouth of Vince backstage. But God, has he been bad on SmackDown? Well, one of the problems is that three man announce team that they are just yes. they are just tied to. You know, true and true, they're going to be do the three man announce team. And I think with the Cruiserweight Classic, they got the the more classic two man announce team, and that's one of the reasons people are raving about it. When you got a third wheel in there, always trying to chirp in here and there, and you got Byron Saxon saying stuff that doesn't make any sense and nobody really cares. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they need to go back to the two man announce team. Sometimes, it's, sometimes the three man booth has worked, but it has to be the perfect dynamic yeah uh, you know if you go back and listen to like in 97 when it was like vince jr and lawler that actually worked i'll tell i'll tell you a funny story about that because i actually am a huge fan of that announced team okay. and uh i was talking to jim ross oh god this is two or three years ago and uh he was in town here for the tragos thez hall of fame and uh it was towards the end of the night it was like just me and him in this room and i was talking to him and i you know i, I brought up announcing and how wwe was struggling with their announced teams and i said you know do you prefer the two-man team the three-man team and you know what did you think about when it was like you vince and lawler because uh i really liked that and he said yeah you know i, I didn't mind it back in 97 but he thinks wrestling should always be a two-man announced team. He thinks three people is is overdone. That's what Jim Ross told me, and I would entirely agree. 
Well, well, he really, you know, I thought he actually did the, you know, and I love like old school Jim Ross. Like I'm talking like 1989, 1990 Jim Ross. Yeah. You know, when he was, you know, kind of part of the creative process as well um, in, you know, NWA, WCW. But that time period was weird in 97 because it was kind of when Vince, you know, I've heard this phrase before, took the muzzle off of him and started letting Jim Ross be Jim Ross. Mm hmm. Um, you know, with the references and stuff like that. And because he and Vince are so different, I think that's kind of why. And Lawler was just a guy who just like, you know, would do one liners and jokes. So he didn't take up a lot of time. And, and he was kind of funny sometimes, believe it or not, back in 1997. <laughs> but, you know, I, I thought because, you know, Vince was just so storyline and Jr. would try to be the guy with credibility. Mm -hmm. um, you know, not that Vince didn't have any credibility, but. Yeah, that worked. But you're right. Most of the time, I mean, you know, WCW's three man announce booths. I mean, were some of the most horrible announcing you've ever heard. If you remember back, especially in those dying days of Nitro, my God, Tanay and uh, Heenan and Tony Schiavone. Yeah, well, was Schiavone <laughs> and Heenan was maybe the worst pairing ever because they just hated each other. So. Oh man, I I interviewed Bobby Heenan in 2002. And uh, he could not say enough bad things about Tony Schiavone. <laughs> the whole key with, you know, I've never obviously done commentary with Bobby Heenan, but the whole key, I mean, it's very obvious, I would think, that the whole key with working with Bobby Heenan is you have to sell his jokes. Yeah. And it may, maybe, you know, he didn't do himself any favor. He just got lazy and stopped caring. And maybe it was just because of Schiavone anyway. And, you know, kind of, you know, when he stopped being able to be Bobby Heenan during the NWO era, because he was always a heel guy and rooted for the heels. And then, you know, no WCW announcer was supposed to do that back then. But, um, you know, Shivani didn't do it. He would like, he would just like blatantly no sell Heenan's jokes or like tell him to like shut up and stuff like that. That was just, yeah, that was a painful pairing back then. And it, it went off the rails so quickly too. You could tell almost from one of the first times they worked together that it, it wasn't going to work. Right. I actually just pulled up my interview with uh, Bobby Heenan. And when he was talking about Tony Schiavone quote, this is what he said about him. He said, working with Tony Schiavone, he wouldn't talk to you. No one was pleasant or polite at all in WCW. Um, he talked to me about how, you know, Shivani, if he knew the, the results of the matches, he would kind of like hold it above his head. And I know what's happening. You don't. Because Bischoff was known for trying to keep results secret from the announcers so they would uh, yes. be more surprised on the air. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, to sum it all up, I think the two-man announced team is is the way to go. <laughs> and that's one of the problems that they have on the main roster. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think well, I think Raw's gotten better, actually, though, just because Corey Graves. But, uh, you know, I, again, I mean, I don't I don't like Byron Saxon at all. I mean, when I watch that show, there's probably at least, you know, six times per show. I'm like, God, what a tool this guy is. <laughs> and, you know, he just it, it, he, he just. Yeah, I don't know. He, I mean, but he's he's whatever. He's what they like. And obviously they want diversity um, in the commentary teams, which isn't a bad thing. But yeah. So as far as the Cruiserweight Classic, I would agree. I think it's it's one of the best tournaments WWE has ever done. Probably the best, actually, but there's not a lot of competition there. <laughs> but another one of the big tournaments going on in the world right now, it's wrapping up on Sunday, is over in New Japan Pro Wrestling. They've got the, the uh, yearly G1 tournament going on. And uh, if you're not a fan of New Japan... It's something that's very easy to watch nowadays. You can subscribe to New Japan World for about $8.40 a month, stream all the shows live and on demand. Um, but this is the G1 Climax 26 tournament. The winner of it kind of gets a briefcase similar to Money in the Bank. They go on to face the IWGP heavyweight champion at Wrestle Kingdom on January 4th, the biggest show of the year in Japan. And uh, 
there's really kind of a log jam uh, going on here with with the tournament. They have an A block and a B block, and I'm going to get to an interview here in a minute where this is all going to be explained. But uh, you know, some of the biggest names in wrestling, we've got like Kazuchika Okada, we've got uh, Shibata, we've got Naito, we've got Kenny Omega. I mean, they're all kind of duking it out to win this tournament. It's really interesting. If you like tournaments in pro wrestling, you should be following the G1. Um, so last night. I actually recorded an interview with Abby Arthur, who is kind of the uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling expert at Top Rope Press. She is hardcore. She stays up. She covers the shows yes. live. I mean, that's incredible that it, she does that. It's crazy. I mean, I don't know of anyone else on any other wrestling website. And, you know, I'm not trying to toot her own horn too much here, but Abby Arthur is up until 5 a.m. covering New Japan live. And she lives in the States. And uh, I, I just don't think anyone else in America is doing that for every show. She does nearly every New Japan show. Um, so I thought it'd be interesting to bring Abby on the show here, talk a little bit about the G1, where it's headed, and uh, you know who she thinks is going to come out on top here on Sunday. So uh, let's go get out to the hotline here and bring on Abby Arthur and talk about the New Japan G1 tournament. I am here with Abby Arthur of TopRopePress.com. She is kind of our resident expert for New Japan Pro Wrestling. She's been with the site now. Uh, Abby, when did you start writing for us? Uh, has it been a year yet? Well, I know you were with us last summer because I remember you were there through all the Hulk Hogan madness. And I covered G1 last summer, so yeah, it's been over a year. Yeah, I'm thinking maybe even a year and a half or so. Um, but Abby is... I'm not just saying this because she writes for us, but she is definitely one of the, I think she's a well-known New Japan expert across the internet. Um, there's very few people that cover the amount of shows live that she does for our website. I mean, you can find her up tweeting in the early morning hours, stupid o'clock, as she says, <laughs> covering the shows live. So she's been a great asset to our website and having those results up nice and early. So um, I think just just as a background, we're going to talk about the G1 here, but I wanted to ask you, Abby, you know, how did you get into New Japan Pro Wrestling? originally oh you're gonna have me date myself right now um when i was a kid i loved wrestling i was in second grade when i had my tonsils out and so i was stuck at home you know we had like four five six channels and flipping through the channels you know wrestling was on and i just loved it and espn when i was i think maybe in fifth or sixth grade were showing the old world class shows and one afternoon they had kabuki on the great kabuki and i was like oh, God, here's this guy with the mist and the paint and nunchucks, and he was just different. So he was the first Japanese wrestler that I really liked, and then there was Muda in the NWA working with um, Gary Hart and Terry Funk, and it was just those two kind of really drew me in, and ever since then, I prefer Japanese wrestling to pretty much anything else. So were you one of those people seeking out everything in the tape trading world back in the day? No, not so much. Um, I'm from a small town in South Georgia, so there was really nothing like that. But the NWA and then later on WCW would always come through, so I would always go to the shows. Met a bunch of the wrestlers, so I was a Crockett Promotions girl. Okay. And then, you know having some of the talent come in with, you know, talent trades between the NWA and New Japan and 
things like that. You got you got exposed that way, but it wasn't until a lot later on that you could that the Japanese wrestling became a lot more available here. And you had organizations like All Japan and then New Japan and here more recently with NOAA and Wrestle One and DDT and things like that. Yeah, I remember kind of I guess it was the late nineties getting into New Japan a little bit and the first the first tape I ever uh, tried to get in the tape trading world was the J Cups, you know, ninety four most notably. Um how how long after the fact did you finally see this the ninety four Super J Cup, probably the most talked about one? Oh, it was probably several years after it happened. Yeah, same because here. in '94, let's date myself here. I graduated high school in '94, so then you know I was working full time and going to college and high school my senior year. So I was like, I really don't have time for anything else. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, like I said, I think I was probably it was six or seven years after the fact that I saw it, but I had been mm-hmm. reading about it in the, in the newsletters and the wrestling magazines for a long time. So. Um, but Abby, the reason we had you on the show here is, uh, the G one's going on, as we said, and, uh, it's kind of wrapping up. You've been covering the whole tournament for us at top rope press. And, uh, I guess, let's see, we're recording this show here on Wednesday, but most of our listeners are probably going to be hearing the show on Friday. So, um, I guess my question for you is, do you think it's a fair statement to say the G1 is the best wrestling tournament in the world? I mean, is there anything that even rivals it, in your opinion? Not for heavyweights, no. If you'd ask if it's the best tournament, I would say that best of the Super Juniors and G1 are probably neck and neck for wrestlers and for great matches and prestige. I don't think anybody can come close to what New Japan does as far as tournaments go. And uh, as far as the G1 goes, when when did that get its start? I mean, how did it come about? Well, this year we're on G1 Climax 26. So this is the 26th year they've had the G1 Climax. But it started off in 1974, and it's had a bunch of names. Um, the World League, um, the MSG League, the International Wrestling, the IWGP League, the World Cup Tournament. You know, and then in 91, it became the G1 Climax, and it's been that ever since. Okay, so, I mean, for, for our listeners that don't really follow New Japan, we, we probably have a pretty heavy WWE crowd listening to this, but um, if you don't know, they, uh, they organize the roster for the tournament into two blocks, the A block and the B block, and if you could, could you kind of explain, you know, why they do that, how that organizes the tournament, and maybe some of the top names on each side this year? Um, it is two groups of 10. You have an A block and a B block. And on each show, they'll have five, you know, tournament matches. The A block guys will go against each other, so they have nine matches apiece. B block, the next night or the next show, will face off against each other. Once again, each guy has nine ma- nine matches going against all the other people in the blocks. Um, you get two points for a win. You get one point for a draw. You get zero points for a loss. And it's just, it's a round-robin, point-based tournament. And uh, what are the standings looking like then going into this weekend? Oh, let's see. We have a five-way tie in A block and a four-way tie, and or, well, a three-way tie with one guy still in contention for B block. And that's with two shows left for each block. 
Okay. And I think, you know, you, you follow New Japan a lot more closely than I do, but I try to keep up with it as much as I possibly can. And I remember going into the G1 this year, um, would you say it's a, a fair statement? Most people thought Naito was probably going to come out on top. Was that the sentiment among most of the New Japan faithful? Or was there some other names maybe out there as possible winners? When you look at the blocks, um, I think a lot of us were kind of worried that it wouldn't be as good as it was last year because New Japan lost a lot of talent, as everyone knows, with AJ Styles and Shinsuke and Anderson and Gallows kind of leaving. So I think everybody was worried that it wouldn't be as good this year. And it's turned out to be incredibly good. A block has not been great. B block has been amazing. Um, I don't know. I think a lot of people were, you know, they didn't really like the fact that everybody, all these people left and they were some of New Japan's top stars. So they were thinking, you know, it was going to be weak. It hadn't been weak at all. It's been challenging to get through some of the shows, but they've been really good matches. Would you say, uh, I mean, lately the the match that's getting the most notoriety uh, from just a few days ago, Okada and Ishii, is that a match of the year for you? That is definitely a match of the year for me. So far, I've got a couple of matches from the tournament that would, you know, be up there with, ma- you know, match of the year. Uh, the first night we had um, Naomichi Marafuji and Kazuchika Okada, who just, that was incredible. And that was the first night of the tournament. And then Ishii and Okada on August the 6th, that's definitely up there, like, in the top three matches of the year so far. I'm almost embarrassed to admit that I haven't watched it yet, but hopefully tonight. I've seen a lot on Twitter people talking about that match and really raving about it, so hopefully I'll get a chance to watch it um, later tonight. Hopefully by the time this airs, I will have seen it, so maybe then I can comment. I too, because it's really, really good. All right. So... Yeah, I mean, it was just before the G1 started, I think, that Okada won the belt back. Is that correct? Yeah, Naito had the belt for just a little while. And for some reason, he is probably the hottest commodity in New Japan right now. And Gato, who is the booker for New Japan, if y'all don't know, and is also Okada's manager, kayfabe manager, um, yeah, took the belt off of Naito and put it back on Okada. I know a lot of people were kind of disappointed in that because Naito had, he seemed to be getting, you know, quite a bit of steam as champion. He's kind of a new face on top. I think a lot of people wanted to see how that played out. So they were hoping maybe, I guess we haven't even said this yet, but typically the G1 winner faces the IWGP champion at Wrestle Kingdom, correct? Yes. It's kind of like money in the bank. They get the briefcase with the contract for Wrestle Kingdom to, for an IWGP heavyweight championship match. So if, so what I guess what I want to ask you is Okada could win the tournament, correct? He could. I hope it wouldn't make any kind of sense at all for him to do that unless he was going to drop the title sometime between now and Wrestle Kingdom to a legitimate opponent. Okay. Yeah, because I was going to ask you, you know, if, if the champion wins, has that happened before? And I mean, is there any precedent for what would what would go down? I think it has happened before, right off the top of my head. I can't tell you when it happened. Um, I think it has, but the situation has been the champion has won, but then shortly thereafter, he's lost the title. Okay. 
What's your prediction, Abby? Who's who's taking it? Uh, well, I just spent like the last hour going through the scenarios for the people, for everybody that's still in contention to win. I'm looking at the standings right now. We have a five-way tie going into Friday's show in A Block. And the guys at the top are Marafuji with 10 points, Okada with 10 points, Bad Luck Fale with 10 points, Hiroki Goto with 10 points, and Hiroshi Tanahashi, who I just can't stand at 10 points. <laughs> if you don't follow Abby on Twitter, um, <laughs> at Abby A, um, you will see plenty of tweets about Tanahashi's hair. <laughs> And the thing is, Tana, you know, he was really New Japan's savior when they were in a really dark time with the company, and he brought it out the other side. I have a ton of respect for Tana and his ability and what he's accomplished for not only himself, but for New Japan as a company in his career. But, God, that hair just gets on my nerves. (laughs) No man should have hair like that. It's just not natural. He does have quite the hair. Have you never seen Hiroshi Tanahashi? Do a Google search. He he is an amazing worker, great wrestler. Um, he's won several Wrestler of the Year awards. Like Abby was saying, he really has he's carried the company for a long time. Um, I think last year at Wrestle Kingdom, a lot of people felt like he was kind of passing the torch, maybe finally to Okada. Um, but now, I mean, there's some people talking that they could go at it again this year in January, isn't there? Yeah, and I, that that would be the safe route to go, would be to have Tana win a block. Right. We've seen it before. He won his block last year. He ended up beating Shinsuke Nakamura in the finals, the G1 finals last year. Um, the image of him breaking the flagpole at the end of the match will never die. Um, but right now, I think they're tied, and I just I, I don't see Okada winning. Um, I think it's going to come down between Tana and Marafuji. And that's weird because Marafuji is not a New Japan guy. He is one half of the GHC Tag Team Champions for Pro Wrestling Noah. Well, I'm I'm hoping they do something different. I, as awesome as, you know, the entire history of Tanahashi Okada is, you know, you're going to get a near five-star match out of those guys most times on the big stage. I, I'm hoping for, a, you know, a change in the main event. I, w- I was really hoping for Okada and Naito, but... I mean, we'll the see. thing is, with Okada and Tana, that would be three years in a row at Wrestle Kingdom that they headline the card. Three years in a row. And that's just not smart. Yeah, it's time because to shake it up. Okada, to me, is a lot like Randy Orton, and Cena is, I mean, and Tana's like Cena. We've seen it so many times, and Okada has kind of gotten complacent. And he he's great in the ring. He's extremely smooth in the ring, talented, young, and all that. But it's kind of like these days he's phoning it in. The reason his match with Marafuji on the first night of the tournament was so good it's because Marafuji made him fight in a different style. So we got to see more out of Okada than you normally would because he had an opponent he had never faced before. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I would agree. I think he, he's pretty versatile, but yeah, you, you can get a different match out of him depending on, on the opponent. Is there is there any chance that uh, Omega could win? Kenny Omega, for those of you not familiar. Omega is in B block. Um Looking at who's got to do what and beat who, I think it's going to come down. In A block, I think it'll come down between Tana and Marafuji. 
because the other three guys, I just don't really see it being plausible. B block right now is a three-way tie between Kenny Omega, Tetsuo Naito, and Katsuyori Shibata. They're tied. And Michael Elgin, who is the current IWGP Intercontinental Champion, is kind of hanging there on the outskirts. And he has a chance of winning, but that's if everybody else loses. And, you know, it's just, it's weird how it'll, how it kind of, you have to do the scenarios. Well, for Omega to win, basically for him to win B block, he has to beat Naito on Saturday. Evil has to beat Shibata on Saturday. And Nakajima has to beat Elgin. You know, it's at the point where you're using algebra and geometry and some kind of weird physics to find out who's going to be doing what. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at the standings here now too. It's it's pretty. It's a it's a log jam, that's for sure. I, I but Naito and Omega face each other Saturday morning. All Naito has to do is win, because he's got 12 points in B Block right now. If he wins, he wins B Block and will go to the finals. I would say my prediction is probably Naito is going to win, but I would love to see Kenny Omega somehow come out on top. I would say I've always liked Okada a lot, but probably over the last year or so, Omega's kind of become my my favorite performer ever since he took over the Bullet Club in New Japan. And I think I think it's pretty fair to say that maybe even this year there's been more of an influx of kind of casual fans looking into New Japan, probably because of the effect of you had these guys coming to WWE. You know, you had Anderson, you had Gallows, AJ even, of course, Nakamura, and people wondering, you know, what's going on? Where are they coming from? And if you don't have New Japan World, um, it's easily the best $8.40 or so you're going to spend every month. You get all these shows on demand. Like we're saying, you can watch them live early in the morning if you want to stay up with Abby and tweet back and forth with her and discuss the shows. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, definitely check it out. If you haven't seen any of the G1, you can go back. Like I said, you can watch them on demand. It's it's a great service, really good video quality. So, um, and it's cheaper than the WWE Network, and it's something really different. Yeah, as far as wrestling style goes. Right. I mean, I always say, you know, if if you're not a fan of WWE or you don't like what they're doing, but you're a wrestling fan, there's really no reason to complain because there's so much great wrestling in the world right now. You can see so easily. You don't have to trade vhs tapes through the mail like we had to do years ago you can just go out there and get on your computer so yeah it's it's all out there waiting for you so check it out um but anyways yeah check out topropepress.com we'll have full results of this weekend's closing shows of the g1 and uh abby will be with us not just for the g1 but for all the new japan shows throughout the year as always so you can always check out her one-of-a-kind reports uh, Abby, thanks for joining us today on Top Rope Nation, and I'm sure this won't be the last time we will have you on the show. So uh, I hope not. Let's uh, let's hope you've been saving up the caffeine for this weekend. You're going to be a, one busy woman. <laughs> I've been busy since like July 18th. I'm just right. it's winding down, and I can see the finish line. <laughs> just go on Top Rope Press and search G1 results, and you'll see Abby Arthur's name over and over and over, ne- like nearly every other day. So. Yeah, you can catch up on the results there. All right, Abby. Well, we will talk to you soon. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. All right, so that was our interview with Abby. So hopefully you learned a little bit about the G1 and possibly you want to catch up on that this weekend. Um, So that's going to wrap up this edition of Top Rope Nation. 
Uh, like we talked about, next week we're going to have a SummerSlam preview in store for you. Uh, we're going to have a little bit of an NXT TakeOver warm-up. Um, we'll, we'll probably be putting out the show around Friday next week, so just in time for the big weekend. And uh, Kyle, what do you, what do you have in, in the works as far as your writing goes over on Top Rope Press that we can look forward to over the next week? Yeah, we'll be talking about the history of SummerSlam. I know that, like you, I very much like going down memory lane when it comes to SummerSlam. I remember the first one, believe it or not, if that makes me sound old, oh well. Uh, but you know, we'll be talking about the top matches, the worst matches, the best cards, the worst cards in SummerSlam history, and why that is. Uh, some top 10s features that we'll be having uh, throughout the website. I know the top 10 matches is already done, and I'll be working on the top 10 SummerSlam cards ever. And uh, yeah, it should be good. It should be, you know, feel free to agree or disagree with me and leave comments. Let me know what you think. Sounds good. All right. Well, we want to thank you all for listening this week. You can catch us next week. Tell your friends, tell your family, do whatever you need. Spread the word. Top Rope Nation, the latest and greatest in wrestling podcasts. So uh, we will see you all next week. Take care. Take care.